I'm Jordan Marr, Podcast Farming. Hello? Hello, is that Nancy? Yes, it is. Nancy, this is that podcaster who contacted you about 10 days ago asking for a short interview about fava beans. Oh, right, okay. Uh, (laughs) That's so funny. I was just about to go down to the kitchen and shuck some fava beans for supper tonight. (laughs) Oh, uh, well, I, um, I, do you want me to say my name is Nancy Harmon Jenkins? You can do that, that if you like. Absolutely. I don't, I don't need to. Um, I lived for many years in various countries of the Mediterranean, as it happened. Most of the time we were in the Mediterranean world, and I became quite fascinated. I, I should go back a little bit and say I had earlier been fascinated by the Mediterranean from the books of Elizabeth David, which I read when they first came out in the United States and was fascinated by them. And so the opportunity to spend a lot of time in the Mediterranean cooking and marketing and gardening and eating and raising a family and uh, doing some writing, all of that um, led me to see that this is a, which hardly earth-shattering news, a unique place in the world, both in terms of its overall culture and in terms of its food culture and the connection between the food culture, which differs, obviously, from one part of the Mediterranean to the other. But there are certain things that hold it together and certain things that tie it to that place and that landscape and that seascape. So that's how I came to be interested in the Mediterranean and to make it really the focal point of most of the writing that I've done. Well, that, that's wonderful, Nancy. I, I can't wait to ask you a couple of questions, but first I'll tell you a little about me, just so that you have the context necessary for this conversation, um, just so I understand what I'm selling. And I read this, this, this article you wrote on, on favas, and I, you know, there, it, it challenged a few notions that I've been holding. So I'm really, I'm really excited to ask you about it. So uh, I think you know the article I'm referring to. Uh, maybe in a nutshell, you can summarize your pet peeves about how fava beans are prepared in North America compared to the Mediterranean. Well, uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. I, uh, I will preface this by saying most fava beans in America are harvested when they're too mature. And most farmers don't understand fava beans, like most chefs. And so they, they look at these, these hulking great fat beans with their big fat um, seeds inside of them, and they say, oh, what am I to do with this? Well... Uh, the French culinary, that is the French uh, haute cuisine tradition, is to peel the fava beans, each individual bean. This is laborious. Um, This wastes a lot of time in the kitchen. This is why so many home cooks don't even bother with fava beans. Um, But it's totally unnecessary. If the beans are harvested when they're small, and I think if you're referring to the article that was in... um, uh, on Zester, uh, a now defunct website, but once a really wonderful website, I showed three different sizes of bean, the mama bean, the, fa- the father bean, and the baby bean. And it's the baby bean that we really want, the one that is about the size of my thumbnail, no bigger than that. And that doesn't need to be peeled. And in fact, if you peel it, you lose a lot of the flavor of the bean. Um, unfortunately, French restaurant traditions have such an impact on Western European and North American foodways 
that this idea that each individual being has to be peeled uh, has become prevalent, so much so that in Italy, my beloved Italy, even there, some chefs are now peeling fava beans before they put them in the pot and send them out to their clients. And I think that's terrible. You know, I think Elizabeth David said somewhere, and I've never been able to find out where she said that. If you peel a fava bean, you're removing a lot of the flavor, the earthy flavor that it has. That's the, the, the kind of treasure of the fava bean. And you might as well eat peas. And having said that, I have to add that there is also a tradition in haute cuisine restaurants in France of peeling individual I just, imagine I just learned about that. I have a chef working for me on my farm this year, and, and he told me that, and I was I was really surprised to hear that. That sounds just awful to be working in a kitchen. It does, doesn't peas. it? I, as it happened, I was, having, uh, I was having a late Sunday lunch with Bill Buford yesterday, and Bill Buford, I think, is the one who revealed this disastrous fact in his most recent book called in Lyon, but it was a three-star Michelin restaurant, and he was taught in the kitchen how to, he called them popping the, the peas. You drop them in boiling water and take them out, and then you can pop them out of their, out of their skin. I think, I think it's one of those things that French chefs devise in order to make their kitchens seem important and worthy of the amount of money it costs to dine in them. But it, it must no but doubt, I, it must no doubt also be related to the availability, as I understand, of a lot of free stage labor. You know, it's it's got to be it's got to be those yes, those exactly. stages that are doing yep, all yep. that pee peeling. I think that practice uh-huh. might change pretty quick if if that you know if if that free labor Absolutely. was eliminated. Yes, so, in fact, Bill was doing a stage in this re- Mer Brazier, that is B R A Z I E R La Mer Brazier, very famous. It was where Bocuse taught. Uh, um, where Bocuse learned to cook in the early days, and many, many great chefs have passed through that kitchen. And so there was poor old Bill Buford popping peas day after day after day. Um, I think, I really think it's, it's a crazy thing. And, you know, when I look back on, uh, I had a, a discussion with Paula Wolfert about, about peeling fava beans in a most recent book that she did. She referred to peeling each individual bean. This is a book about Moroccan food. And I said, gee, that's funny, Paula. When I was in Morocco, I never saw anybody peeling fava beans. Well, they do, she said. And I saw it. And I went back and looked at her first great, a great book about Moroccan food. And she never mentions peeling fava beans. So clearly something had happened between her first trip to Morocco and her second trip to Morocco. And I think it's the impact of French uh, haute cuisine restaurants on either Moroccan food or are on Paula or on both. Okay, so so to to summarize a bit, you think we're kind of making collectively two mistakes currently in North America, and we're generalizing here, but we're harvesting. Yeah. We're, we farmers are harvesting and sending the beans to mature, and meanwhile, mm-hmm. cooks are then um, are are peeling or taking the time to peel the beans, and you're connecting the well, two. Well, they're stripping them of their essence, and in, right. in fact. Uh, I don't know whether I mentioned this in that article you referred to. I've written about fava beans over and over and over again (laughs) since I came back to this country. But um, one of the things I learned in the Middle East, in Beirut, for instance, um, they often cook the whole bean, um, cutting up up the way you would um, string beans, for instance. Right. 
So pods and all. So that must also need to happen when the beans are less mature. A little bit less. Oh yes, yes, of course, much less mature because uh, because they've got a pretty tough string on them as they mature. You're probably aware of that. Um, in in Tuscany, where I I keep dropping places, but that's my habit. Um, where I also have spent a lot of time working in gardens. There, I had obviously, like everyone, I had fava beans growing in my garden, and like my neighbors, I planted the fava beans in December about six inches deep. And they came up in April, and by the 1st of May, we had the first fava beans. And there, we eat them raw when they're young with a rather fresh pecorino cheese, not anything like Romano cheese, nothing like that at all, a Tuscan pecorino young cheese and raw fava beans. It's typically served as a sort of antipasto in Tuscan restaurants in May. Okay, well, I need to work through a few things with you here. I need to unpack all of this a little bit. So okay, we've got two things happening. Like I said, we've got, we've got harvesting them too large and then, you know, sort of related, peeling the beans. So first of all, what do you think came first, harvesting them too large or, that is, or, or, or the, the, the repetition of the French technique of peeling? Um, like which influenced the other, <laughs> sort of? Well, I can't tell you. I can tell you that fava beans were a colonial bean that was, was planted here, at least in New England. Um, and because I have records of that, diaries of people planting fava beans in the late 18th century, uh, a woman who kept a garden on the Kennebec River in Maine. So at one point, fava beans were a normal uh, domestic garden crop. And probably a, a section of that crop, just as it was with other types of beans, fasciolus beans, was left to dry on the, on the plant and then shucked to make dried beans to keep for the winter. So it was a very useful crop because you had both a fresh crop and a dried crop. At some point, they fell out of usage completely. And if you look through 19th century cookbooks, you don't, they were called broad beans, as the English still call them today. If you look through 19th century cookbooks, you, from, from America, that is, from North America, you find very, I don't think I've ever seen a reference to uh, broad beans or fava beans. And then they come back in. Uh, presumably with, uh, as a lot of Italian food products did, which is why we call them fava beans. We don't call them fev, and we don't call them broad beans. We call them fava. And that's an Italian word, obviously. So clearly they came back in with the Italians at some point. Now, the Italians don't peel their fava beans traditionally. So I'm guessing that, uh, you know, people were, uh, as with a lot of these, a uh, kind of Mediterranean products like eggplants, for instance, they were they were harvested. They were allowed to get massive and kind of unpleasant. And you know, I think one reason why we insist on salting uh, eggplant before we fry it is is a result of the eggplant being allowed to get way too mature and almost bitter. So for the same reason, we let fava beans get big because I mean, the bigger they are, the better they are, right? Yeah, well, we're we're so, not... we we just tend to want to emphasize quantity. We're, we're very impressed by quantity, and sometimes at, yeah. the, at the expense of quality. Right. I I, uh -huh. I want I want you to know that that I am committing the crime that you speak of. I've been harvesting them quite mature, and in fact, you know, I'm I, I'm not. I don't come from a farming background. I've had to figure a lot of this out as I go, 
And I've mm-hmm. taken I've taken cues from some of my chefs. They're very help. They can be very helpful in guiding me toward how mm-hmm. how you know they 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 tell me how they want to receive stuff. And one chef, when, right. my first year of growing favas, suggested that he's used to getting them when the when the shells or pods are turning black. In other words, quite mature. Uh, so I've been using yeah, that as my yeah. guide ever since. And I read your article, and it was kind of mind blowing because. And now I have a new question. Um, <laughs> As a farmer who really wants to cater to my chef customers, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give them the whole package. I'm trying to give them good customer service. I'm trying to give them high quality and I'm trying to give them good, good value for their, for their money. And so back to the quality quantity thing, I've been considering it a, you know, I can't send them to immature, like just be, by virtue of you're getting less bean and more pod, you know, for, for what I'm charging. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. And if I could add one more sub question, because you seem to know so much about Medi- the Mediterranean countries, everyone talks well, about everyone talks about food, good food being so cheap over there, you know. And I'm yeah, I'm just yeah, wondering yeah. if you have also a comment on if that if that whether that's true and why it's true. Because honestly, uh, I, I I don't know that food is cheaper there. I, I I actually will tell you this: the first thing I do when I get to my town of Cortona is go to uh, a, a food shop, a, a fruit what we call a fruity vendolo, a fruit and vegetable shop, where um, the two women who run it uh, raise a lot of their own vegetables, and I stock up there. And I, every time I do that, I take all of these vegetables and, and fruits and so forth back home and cheese and eggs and stuff like that. And I'm astounded at how little I've spent and what enormous quality I've obtained from it. But the other piece of that is that Europeans in general, and particularly the French and the Italians, and to a certain extent the Spanish, are much more willing to part with a segment of their disposable income for really good food than we in the Americas are. And I don't know why that is. People are always, you know, USDA, the Department of Agriculture, really likes to brag about how what a small percentage of our disposable income we spend on food. And I say, yeah, but look at the kind of food we're eating and compare it to the kind of food those um, not-so-French spend. You know, they spend, I don't know, 35% of their daily in- of their um, disposable income on food, but they get really good food out mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of packaged, commercial, overly processed, um, made with junky wheat and junky sugar and junky fats instead. So, uh, it, so it's a tricky question, you see, because it's both – it's true that th- things in season there seem to be cheaper than things in season here. Here in my farmer's market, if I don't raise my own zucchini, I can pay a dollar a piece mm-hmm. for a zucchini flower. And over there, I can get, for a dollar, I can probably get a dozen or even two dozen mm-hmm, zucchini mm-hmm. flowers. But see, that's, that, that, that really interests me because I've had chefs, customers of mine who've spent time over there comment on things like the, 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 the price of things there, certain products there versus here, like favas, for what I want to charge um, to make it worth my while in my economy and my reality, it, it uh, you know, what, what, it, it, it makes it it makes it quite expensive for the chef to to, to feature this the product that especially right. if especially if they're throwing away the pod. So 
it's it's funny. It's I think I think if I'm going to come on board with your point of view, and I think I want to because I'm always looking. I I I I, I see the logic of your argument in terms of the quality achieved when you uh, when you mm-hmm. when you harvest more immature. Um, but it's going to be baby steps because essentially I need to work. I need to like bring some chefs on board to the point of view and say, look, if I harvest them really immature, the, the flavor is going to be better. And maybe you can use those pods. Maybe you can actually, we right. can not, not just, not just put them in water for a stock, but like actually be serving them or something. Um, right. I th- right. Right. I, I think you would have been, if you had come to my farmer's market stall this week and seen the size of the beans I've harvested, you wouldn't be buying them. I can assure you they're, they're quite, they're quite plump. <laughs> Well, what's your climate like out there? Could you plant fava beans now to harvest in the fall? Yes, I have a couple succession crops coming, and uh, I'm so well. That'll be my first crack. And usually, overwintering them, like the December planting you've spoken of, we don't have the Mediterranean climate here, so that's trickier, um, but not not yeah, impossible. I've done that. I've done that in Maine, mm-hmm. and it's worked out okay for you. Yeah, it has. I mean, not every single. Uh, bean came up, but I think that might be partly because the chipmunks and so forth get in there and, and steal them from me. But if I were to protect them from the chipmunks, I think they would come up. It's a, the trick is to plant them deep, obviously. I mean, but they plant, I plant my garlic in December too and plant it deep. And that's another, but everybody around here now plants their garlic in December. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you plant yours? Uh, a little earlier, usually October, early November. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to try the deep. And when does it? Oh, yeah. so when is All it har- right. harvested? When do, you, when do you harvest your garlic? Uh, anytime now. In the next two weeks, I okay. plan to harvest. Yeah. 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 So, look, Interesting. Um, Nancy, I've got two more questions if you can, if you've got the time. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, I have. All right. So, one of them is another... Um, one of them is another. Well, okay. I, one last thing on the on the peeling of fava beans. Do you have any sympathy uh-huh. for the chef who wants to showcase that brilliant green color underneath the skin, or do you just, or do do you do you do you not have time for such considerations? I don't have any time for it myself, um, and I think what he's doing is valuing appearance over flavor. But if he were to do something like a, a presentation where half the beans were, were peeled and the other half left so that they get that, that sort of um, pale jade color, mm-hmm. um, I think that might be interesting. That seems like a good An compromise. interesting presentation. Mm-hmm. Or, or to do it the way they do in Lebanon, where you would have some pods in there and some peeled beans and some whole beans Wonderful. unpeeled. Okay. So my last question then is actually still fava-related, but... As far as me trying to get as much value from my crop as I can, um, I've been getting more and more interested in dried legumes. And I'm just wondering, like, dried fava beans are not a common ingredient in people's pantries in North America. Would you no, make, would, you, would you make a case for it? Like, is that something I should try and develop a market for, or am I, am I just going to bang my head against the wall? I think you're going to bang your head against the wall. I think dried beans in general, I mean, I love dried beans, and I have... A lot. In fact, I have some from Oregon right now that a friend sent me that I'm very excited about. Um, I, I I don't think there's an appreciation of dried beans. Whenever I, you know, it's a traditional Saturday night dish in Maine is baked beans, and um, I love it. I grew up in Maine, and that's my my kind of uh, my family standing dish, so to speak. But I think it's a really hard sell. I would never. My daughter has a restaurant here. I would never suggest that she put baked beans on her menu because mm-hmm. I think she'd have a really hard time selling it. What so a- until we grow up a little bit <laughs> in our tastes, 
I I don't think it's worth bothering with. But what about in your own kitchen? Are are, are dried fava something you like to work with sometimes? Or well, like- I do when I can get good quality ones, and that's not easy either. The other thing that happens with the dried beans is you have to peel them because by the time uh, by the time they're dried, that peel on the outside is really tough. Mm-hmm. So you have to soak them and then peel them, and then you can cook them. Or you can soak them and peel them and freeze them. You know, they, they freeze very well. But um, they do have to be peeled before you consume them. And that's, I, I mean, in the south of Italy, they make wonderful purees of dried fava beans peeled in the wintertime. And you buy them with no peel on them, and you take them home, and you put them in water and bring them to a boil. And very soon, they sort of disintegrate into a delicious puree Mm -hmm. all by themselves. So it's very little work. But getting that kind of product here is, or introducing it to people is really, really hard, I think. Well, Nancy Harmon Jenkins, it sounds like this... uh... This this has almost been a Sisyphean task for you, pushing pushing the fava boulder up oh, the mountain, try, trying yes. to change behaviors. <laughs> but I want you to know that that I am now one of your acolytes, and I will I will go forth and try and uh, okay. change people's behaviors. I'm, I'm quite excited to to goof around with trying to sell uh, less mature fresh favas next year, and I very much appreciate your time. I want everyone to know that in ruminant drive cast tradition, uh, new tradition. This was a this was pretty much a cold call. We did not schedule this and. Nancy was gracious enough to take the call. Um, one more thing, Nancy. I, I know you've written multiple books. Any any one in particular you want to promote right now? Well, uh, the one that is closest to my heart right now is my olive oil book um, called uh, Virgin Territory. Um, and, but it doesn't have a lot about fava beans in it. Although we do eat beans at the end for the harvest to celebrate the olive harvest. We always have a plate of beans with olive oil poured over it. But... Um, Probably uh, for information about fava beans, I would think that um, the essential Mediterranean would have more in there about beans and legumes in, um, in, in Mediterranean cultures in general. And is that one of your books, Nancy? Yeah. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Uh, Nancy Harmon Jenkins, thank you so much for being such a good sport about this random call from a uh, Canadian farmer. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Hello. Is that David? Yeah, speaking. Jordan. David, how's the buckwheat crop looking? It, it was stellar. Yeah, it was a great crop. It's it's mowed down now, but no, we. we uh, David, I don't I don't care how your buckwheat crop is. I'm, <laughs> I'm just I'm just I'm just trying to butter you up. Do you know what I'm doing right now? Well, you don't need to butter me up. What do you uh, What do you want? Well, you're being recorded, so no cussing. <laughs> no cussing if you're concerned about your public image. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk for five minutes about how what it's like farming right now? Um, I have five minutes. We're in the middle of uh, our garlic harvest. Okay. Um, but yeah, if it's just five minutes, it's fine. Let's keep it. Let's keep. Let's just dive right in, David. Okay. okay. Of Plenty Wild Farms. Yeah. In Squamish, British Columbia. 
Uh, Pemberton. Pemberton. I'm sorry, David. We just tr- yeah. we obviously we don't know each other well enough, or else I'm just a callous friend. Yeah, uh, or you just haven't done your research. But I haven't done my research. How's it going? No. How's it going overall? Uh, it's it's stressful. Um, yeah, lots of stress. Uh, sales are are maybe seventy percent. <laughs> uh, from last year, which is I hear not bad. <laughs> for... Okay, is that just below or just above the line to qualify for some wage subsidies? <laughs> I'm sure by the end of the season it'll be uh, it'll be just above the yeah, line. That's where I'm. Yeah. Right. Honestly, seriously though, I'm I'm also hovering around seventy percent, which you know is not terrible. And we both know there's people way worse off, but it's like yeah, ah, that's that's my income though. Like, I don't know that I'll have income this year. That's what I'm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what that 30% was for. Mm. But, uh, yeah, we'll just have to see what the, uh, what the help is like at the end of the year. So did you, did you, you know, in anticipation of what was going to happen back three months ago, did you shift your production towards fall harvest? Like, is it, you got more stuff, more stuff for storage and less stuff for active harvesting or no? No, that had definitely crossed our minds, but it's just not where it wouldn't have been easy for us to do. We don't really have a market for, for winter stuff. Like we do, we do do a, a winter uh, farmer's market in Squamish, but it's still, it's still not a very busy market. So we, uh, we, instead we, we just, we tried to, tried to sell the same amount of product over the main season. And uh, we adopted the, the online, a uh, local line, uh, store, uh, an online store to help, uh, yeah, help just keep our sales like they were last year. And uh, so you yeah. are you are very much a farmers market fo- oriented farm and have have yeah, done, have done I, well. Yeah, you've, you've you know yeah, yeah, you've yeah. Done, like we done decently. We we have in the past. Yeah, we've done decently. <laughs> um, yeah, we 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 sort of dabbled in a whole bunch of things over the years. And we got away from CSA and uh, restaurants and focused on really two farmers markets that we attend uh, three times a week, uh, total three times a week, uh, as well as farm sales, farm gate sales. And yeah. So, so, uh, so did, did, it, did those markets, are they still going? Like, did you lose any of those markets this year completely? Yeah. So the two markets I'm talking about, one is Squam in Squamish and then one's in Whistler. And the one in Squamish, um, really, it just felt like it had the full support of the municipality. And uh, the board of directors worked really hard along with the new market manager to implement kind of all the protocols they had in Vancouver. And we're really lucky, first off, that we had, you know, a template uh, from the farmers markets in Vancouver to work from. And so, no, I'd say that market for us at least, uh, has been much the same as, as it's always been. It's been a good market for us. Um, the one in Whistler on the other hand, uh, was just, just been, just been hard to even get it going. Uh, it's just a bunch of politics. And anyways, it's a long story. I don't think five minutes would really do it justice, but, uh, it just started last, uh, two Sundays ago. Oh, so, so, so three, su- super late. Super late. Super late. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we were kind of just running around looking to sell stuff for about a month there. And we, we did 
get in to some Sunday markets in Vancouver just to kind of get by. And so that did help. And yeah, it finally started two Sundays ago, but it's just, it's such an interesting market because it's a resort community and a resort town. And so we're really seeing exactly how much, um, yeah, how much of what we made, you know, at that market uh, was based on, on, on tourism dollars. And yeah, without that tourism, it's, it's not quite the market uh, it was. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's where that 30% is <laughs> missing right now. Well, uh, that's from look, I'm, I'm aware you need to get back to harvesting, so we can leave it there. Thanks for the little glimpse. I am sorry. I am going through it too. My, my sales are, um, I don't know, in absolute terms over last year, I'm down somewhere between, I, I haven't, I have to do another like summary, but somewhere between 10 and 15 grand so far with yeah. a lot more income to come. Um, yeah. so a lot more potential loss to come and I'm hustling. I am seriously hustling to try and make up for me. It was a huge loss in restaurant sales to start and now they're back, but yeah, they're not back yeah. in full force. And I am driving myself insane trying to like hustle a household program, but it's like so many more hours of distribution a week that I'm doing right yeah, now. Yeah. So. I, th- I mean, I think that's where a lot of the stress comes in too. It's just, we are putting in so many more hours as well. Uh, just filling out all these, uh, yeah, orders through the, the online store and uh, as well as just not having childcare, man. Yeah. How, um, many, how many did you have lined up heading into the season? How many days a week? For childcare? Yeah. I think we had hoped on having three days a week. Um, and then uh, my partner, Alyssa, her, her parents are out uh, doing hay and stuff for about four weeks total. Um, so yeah, I mean, normally it's fine, but yeah, no, it's just been, it's been, it's been hard to do all the extra hours, uh, and also have a a three-year-old tagging along. Yeah, we've got, we've got the three-year-old and the new eight-month-old and we lost our daycare. So we've been, it's been, it's been, yeah, it's been interesting. Um, And then on top of it, on top of it, people call you incessantly to ask you to give you their, your, them, your opinions on farming which sucks. Um, so got any, like in four seconds, garlic harvesting tips for the masses? Any, any, uh, any, any like plenty wild insights? Uh, well, what we've learned is we just try to do all the steps at once. So basically our, our garlic harvest crew has gotten bigger uh, every year. And so now it's, it's being pulled, uh, bundled and hung, uh, all on the same day. Oh, so, okay. yeah, yeah. Whereas before we'd kind of, you know, it would get out of the field and then it would sit in a pile kind of on the floor in the barn for a while. And then, you know, we'd get to it eventually. So yeah, that's my only tip is just to just get it done, get her done, get her done. Well, um, yeah. uh, I, 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 I am so, I am so grateful for the time and say hi to Alyssa and, um, I hope it gets better and I will talk to you soon on the dark ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Uh, have fun this summer. I hope it gets better for you as well. Thanks, David. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Trying to give me the screw. But if we bury ourselves in the woods in the country, wear no clothes so we never have laundry, we'll owe nothing to this world of thieves. Live life like it was meant to be. Ah, oh, don't. Red honey, I've got a plan.
to make our final escape All we'll need is each other a hundred dollars And maybe a roll of duct tape And we'll run right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.